Welcome everyone. Uh, I'm Trev. I'm also fighting off. Uh, I think I finally got that cold uh, that everyone else had earlier in January and February. And so uh, I'm praying that the Spirit keeps my voice going. Some of you are praying that the Spirit stops my voice from going. Um, but either way, I'm glad that you're here. And uh, yes, we are in a series. And my name is Trev and I am the pastor here at this point in our church. And I want to begin by asking you this question. Who's your teacher? Who's your teacher? Who do you follow? Now, I don't, I, I, I don't want you to think just about who do you follow in terms of who do you say you follow. There's always this disconnect we have between the people that we say we follow and the people that we really follow. The people who are really students of and the people who we say we're students of. You know, some would say, I'm a, I'm a student of this, or I, it, it, even if we're not Christians, sometimes we would say we are disciples of a particular author or a particular movement. And today we're going to talk about being disciples of Jesus. Really, as, as we look throughout our series called Household, and, and for those of you who are, are brand new here, this is in the middle of a series. This is not just a standalone message about being a disciple of Jesus. It's in the context of our series on, on the household, which is what are our values as a church family? And when we ask you to commit to our church family, to serving our church family, what are we asking you to commit to? Uh, and so we've come up with t 10 things that really matter to us. And, and I guess you could put this at the very beginning if you wanted to. Uh, there's no necessarily order of importance, but but this one is one of those ones where you could have put it at the very beginning. And that's because more than anything else, we are about being disciples and about making disciples. What's interesting is we've talked an awful lot about church planting, and I'm all for church planting. We belong to a church planting network. Johnny's our church planting coach. He's, he's leading and guiding us, and I think that's a great thing to be part of because church planting is one of the best ways to do evangelism that we know. It's the best strategy out there. But one of the things I noticed is when we keep talking about church planting and we do not talk about disciple making, we may have churches full of people, but we don't necessarily have churches full of disciples of Jesus. And this strong conviction from me and I think from a lot of our leaders here, even in January, February, March, was that we have to listen to Jesus. And Jesus actually never said plant churches. Did you know that? He never said plant churches in my name. He never says get people to come to your church, get them to attend, get them to give, get them to be committed with their lives, get them to serve with their gifts. Do you know what he did say? He said, make disciples. And we have a strong conviction that that is really our primary focus here at Urban Grace. That if we do as Jesus asked us to do, which is to make disciples, then we will have lots of churches to plant because there's going to be lots of people following Jesus and they always need to be organized, right? And so this morning we're going to talk about discipleship and, and really what what we want to base this all upon is this one uh, verse. It's very popular. I mean, anyone who ever talks about discipleship could never really bring this up without bringing up this one particular verse in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. And this is Jesus, remember? Jesus, he's, he's just risen from the dead. 
And he's literally going to heaven where he is going to wait till he comes back. That's kind of what we know about Jesus. We don't even know what he's necessarily going to do there. Really, all we have is Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father and waits for the time in which he's going to return and gather all his disciples. And this is what he said. He said to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you haven't already, and I know there's some neat nicks amongst us that really don't like to underline in their Bibles, well, break that habit and underline that verse. That is a crucial verse for you to understand if you want to be a Christian. Speaking of Christian, did you know that that word doesn't really show up that often in the Bible? In fact, we don't even see or hear of that until Acts chapter 12 when someone else who's making fun of the people that are following Jesus starts calling them Christians. That's where we get the name Christian from. It's not even, it's not even the proper name. Jesus didn't say make Christians. Pe- people were like, well, who are these little Christ? They're walking around as if they actually had Christ inside them. Oh, they're a bunch of Christians. And some of the disciples were like, hey, that's, that's not bad, actually. Let's, let's use that name to describe us. We're little Christ. We're followers of Jesus. But really, ultimately, the most popular name that we see is disciple. You do word search on it, and you'll see it all over the place in the Bible. But we have to talk about this issue. Like, what is a disciple? What does this actually mean? And I'm going to do in about 35 minutes what usually takes about four or five books to do. So I just want you to know that I'm going to miss some things. I'm not going to be able to cover everything there is to know. I want to give you the 40,000 foot view of what the Bible says is a disciple of Jesus. The first thing we've got to understand is that discipleship is an identity. Discipleship is an identity. This is so helpful for us because we live in a culture that doesn't think of our religion as something that inhabits all of our life. Right? Like, well, some people would say, like, this is my life. Have you seen those t-shirts? Like, beer is my life. Or, like, such and such a football team or hockey team is my life. I mean, it's, it's kind of, they're, they're almost saying it tongue-in-cheek, but in some ways they're trying to give this sense in which the team that I cheer for, and this sounds silly when you say it like this, doesn't it? The team that I cheer for is my identity, meaning that my life rises and falls based upon the success of this team. Can you imagine that? That we're actually willing to say that? So we know what this means to have our identity in something. That's, that's a shallow one, but some of us have our identity in other things. You don't realize you do, but you do. You have your identity in the fact that you're a student. I'm a student. You have your identity in where you were a student of. Let's go even deeper. Some of you have an identity in what you do for a living. In fact, isn't that one of the ways we introduce ourselves? By telling people our identity right away? We do it through what we do often, not through who we are through what we do. Some of you, your identity is is a particular role that you have. Now we're starting to get even deeper. I know I'm touching some issues here. Your identity is in male or female. 
your identity is in mother or father. That's a big one in our community. Big one in our community is the identity is in who my children are and how my family functions. And you know what your identity is because when someone starts to push it, you don't like it. You notice. It bothers you. So if your identity is in your marriage and your marriage begins to fall apart, what happens to you? You begin to fall apart. If your identity is in your job and your job is taken away from you, what happens to you? Your life begins to crumble. Your identity is in the kind of band that you listen to. What happens when that band breaks up or they come out with a new album that you don't like? Your identity goes down and you've got to find a new band. You've got to find a new identity. What happens when your identity is in a particular hobby or a particular person or relationship that you have and then that's removed from you? Here's what happens is your life begins to crumble and you begin to post on Facebook and all kinds of places, my life is over. This is what happens to us. This is why we've got to establish right away Christianity is not... It's not about a set of rules that we use to understand our lives. Christianity is about having our identity and being a follower of Jesus. And so instead of putting our identity in something that rises or falls, and we all know it does. We all know marriages don't last forever. We all know jobs, particularly in our culture, do not last forever. We all know relationships do not last forever. But here's what happens when we put our trust in our identity in Jesus Christ because he never changes, because he is always faithful, because he never leaves us. Our life doesn't have to crumble when other things do. It is a good word. It is the word. And some have understood Christianity as something that you just need to plug into your life. And you're struggling with that. That's why Christianity is so frustrating to you. Because you're like, for crying out loud, I cannot do this stuff that he keeps talking about on Sunday morning. I try to integrate this into my already packed life. I try to do some extra things that I'm told to do. I, I, you know, I guess we're supposed to pray if we want to be good people of urban grace, and so I can't seem to fit that in my schedule, and here's what I say. Throw that all out the window and say, first establish where your identity is. And I guarantee you this will not be, first of all, necessarily an immediate process, and you will not find immediate success. This is a lifelong journey. That's why we called it discipleship. It's a journey. It takes time. And essentially, there is this pattern of a disciple, someone who follows Jesus within Scripture, and it's really simple, and I'm basically ripping off everything that's ever been written about discipleship because nothing is new under the sun. You can find it in any number of books on discipleship. But there is this process of a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus as an identity starts with the come and see. Some of you are at this stage. You're checking out Christianity. You're checking out Jesus. You think maybe even you're a Christian because of what you do. But your identity hasn't been established yet. And Jesus did this. He walks up to this person. He says, hey, come follow me. Come and see what I do. Come and see what I'm like. 
If you read in the New Testament, you will see that Jesus begins his ministry by asking a lot of people to come and see. Come and see. Come and see the real God. Come and see the Savior. We at Urban Grace would say, this is the way we would try to treat those who are very new to the faith or are not yet believers. This is why we welcome you and why we talk about you on Sunday morning. Yes, we believe you're here. People that are in the come and see stage. But just like any mature process, you move along in stages. There is no such thing as just kind of stagnant in the Christian life. You can't just sit in one spot. You either move forward or you move backward. And so we're always, and, and let me just state it bluntly, some of you need to move from the come and see stage to the go and die stage because there is that movement. This is why we use the word family so often because that's very helpful for us. When we think of families, it would be very unusual for us to build and develop a family where everyone was a perpetual infant. And this is increasingly hard in our culture because we literally, we do celebrate the 35-year-old adolescent in our culture. Have you noticed that? Like those who are like going against the grain and can't seem to grow up, even our sitcoms are based around them. These are the heroes of our culture. And those who have their lives together at a very early age, those are weirdos. I mean, a hundred years ago, it's completely opposite of that. The weirdos are those who at the age of 15 can't grow up and manage a family. But we live in this culture where maturity is not part of our vernacular. We're not used to maturing. We're 40 years old. We still can't figure out what we're doing with our lives. We can't decide who we're married until we're 35 because, ooh, something else might come along. Do you know that in the Christian life, there's this expectation that you do not stay an infant forever. I expect my children to be children, but even my six-year-old, as cute as she is, when she starts talking like a baby, I say, don't talk like a baby. Why do I do that? Because I don't like babies? Well, some of you are like, probably. It's not true. I love babies. They smell delightful. You ever smell the baby's head? Like, they need to make an air freshener out of that smell. Why don't I want her talking like a baby? Because I don't like babies? I love babies. I don't have them anymore, but I love babies. She's not a baby, that's why. She's six. I don't want my 11-year-old talking like a baby. I certainly don't want my wife talking like a baby. She's certainly not a baby. But sometimes we have this expectation in churches that we're just calling people to be babies all the time. People that are not maturing in a process. And so this is why some of the, some of the time people just leave churches because like, I want, I want to be an infant a little bit longer. I want to be an adolescent a little bit longer. I don't really want to grow up. And here's what Jesus said. At some point, you're just going to have to figure this out. I want to read this scripture to you because he said there's a, there's a point when you just have to decide what, what it is you're, or who you're going to follow. In Luke chapter 14, in the ESV, he says this. And I, I put now great crowds accompanied him in the, in the passage because I want you to see this isn't a small select group of people that know exactly who he is. 
This is like all kinds of people. There would be people that this is the first time they've ever heard about Jesus, and there would be people there that they've been listening to Jesus for quite some time. Then there would be those who have been following Jesus or or watching what he's doing, some of them scratching their heads, some of them kind of, I kind of get it. There would have been all kinds of levels of people here in this crowd. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and it really is this point, I think, that great crowds also leave him because this is what he said. He turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, I didn't misread that, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Some of you are like, wait a second, this is why I hate Christianity. Because <laughs> Jesus says, if you don't hate mother and father, what he's trying to do there is he's basically saying, if you don't love me above all things, you cannot be my disciple. Do you know anyone else who demands that of you? Does your job, does your boss be like, okay, I want to see some ground rules. Okay, you can't steal any pens. Um, you've got to love me above all things, and you've got to show up to work on time. doesn't sound like a normal thing you would say to a group of people that are following you, but that's what Jesus says. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he uses a couple illustrations. He says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? I apologize as your pastor that I haven't asked you enough to sit down and consider the cost involved in following Jesus. Jesus does it all the time. Some of you, this is all you need to hear. You need to take some time. You need to get away, go to the mountains, Starbucks. You need to sit down and consider the cost involved in following Jesus. You need to read the scriptures and go, am I willing to, am I willing to lay my life down for this man? You need to read the book of John and he, see all the hard things that he says. And consider the cost. Otherwise, when he is laid a foundation, is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to an encounter, another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? He says, What kind of king would just go into battle without considering what he's up against. What kind of moron king is what Jesus is trying to say? Would not at least process, what, what's going on here? What, what am I dealing with? What am I dealing with? I know it's probably one of those Sundays where some of you are like, I'm tempted never to come back here. I understand that. Because there's a cost involved, and some of you I know are just not willing to count that cost. It's just too costly right now. Jesus' grace just isn't good enough for you right now. What he has done for you is just not enough. You need something more. What he offers as an identity just isn't amazing enough to you. I understand that. I'm not saying there's not struggles. But some of you flat out just need to be honest with yourself and even with us as a church family. 
are you in? Have you counted the cost? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He, this is a king that's trying to figure out. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Notice he didn't say cannot be a Christian. He didn't use that. He said cannot be a disciple. You can't follow me if you don't give it all up to get me. No one said good word to that. Because that's a hard word. It's a very hard word. Because I know most of us will go to work on Monday morning and it will be completely forgotten and there will be easier things to place our identity in and more accessible and in short term, at the very least, more enjoyable things than counting the cost of following Jesus. I had this objection as, t- as I talked through this, and this is one of my friends. He was actually my boss, and, and, and he said, I just, I just don't understand. He goes, you Christians... You know it's going to go well when you, when you hear the phrase, you Christians. You Christians. He says, I just don't understand why you think that God would ask you to love him more than everything else. Now, another boss, both construction bosses, he had hired someone, and the first thing he said when I walked on the job site and this person was hired was, hey, dude, Check out this guy. He's pointing to me, Trev. This guy loves God more than his own kids. What an idiot. It's tough for some of us. It's tough. But I would push back on that and say, friends, you don't want a God who doesn't demand everything from you. Let's flip this around. If you look at the landscape of like high caliber anything, when you get a high-caliber sports team, what is the one thing they seem to demand of you? You're all. There are high school volleyball teams that make you sign waivers that say the volleyball team will become more important than any family appointment or birthday party that you have. I'm like, anyone trying to do anything of quality demands a high standard. When you've got high standards of Olympics, like, this is almost impossible to, to break into an Olympic team. And you have hundreds of thousands of people trying out for these positions, hoping that they can get to that level of standard. Friends, you want the kind of God that could demand your all. You want that God. You don't want a God who says, you know what, what would be great I would love it if you guys just could squeeze me in for two hours every week. You don't want that kind of a God. That God is helpless. You want a God who is so in control of everything that he simply says, you know, if you want to follow me, you're just going to have to give up everything. You want a God who's so completely in control that he does not get... His identity does not get shattered because you reject him. His greatness is not threatened because some people think, man, that guy thinks a lot of himself. 
You want a God who is so in control, he can simply say, I am so willing to let you see this that I will even pursue you. And that's exactly what he does. He's so in control, he doesn't even wait for you to pursue him. He came to you first. That's exactly what the Bible says. Christ died for us. God pursued us while we were yet sinners. Friends, friends, we want this kind of God. Don't you want to put your identity in a God who just can't be moved no matter what happens? Don't you want to put your faith in a God who, who, who no one can ever take from you? Don't you want that God? Friends, that's, that's the God of the Bible. That's Jesus. He's that good. He's that worthy to be followed. Discipleship is an identity, and friends, it's worthwhile to put our trust in this Jesus as an identity. And so I'm going to take you through three things. And th- I, I, I took this from a, a great writer named Jonathan Dodson who wrote an excellent book called Gospel-Centered Discipleship. And if you want kind of uh, a, a good book, a good primer, so to speak, on uh, what this is about, I would recommend this book really highly. I think you can, we, we've, we've, Urban Grace now has an online bookstore. It's called Kindle. And so you can go there and you can, <laughs> yes, thanks Kindle for hosting our online bookstore. And you can buy this for 10 bucks. It's worthwhile to have on your Kindle. And he says there's really three categories of um, a disciple that there are. There's the rational, there's the relational, And then there's the missional. And so I'll end by talking through these three things. It's rational. Being a disciple is rational. This means we think. This is one of the biggest problems people have with Christians. They say they're people that really don't think. I I would say we're, we're people that really, at the end of the day, it's about faith. But it doesn't mean we don't think. It doesn't mean we don't learn. There's a rationalness to Christianity. There are, there is... There is the word to follow. There's some thinking to be done. Even as Jesus said, if you don't sit down and think about whether you want to be my disciple, what kind of person are you? You don't think about whether you can complete this tower or not. I mean, the... the, when, when someone builds a building, especially in Calgary downtown, and they run out of money and they finish, people just laugh at this. They're like, what kind of, what kind of moron construction company can't even finish their own building? Because people didn't think, hey, maybe there's a recession coming. Maybe we shouldn't pour billions of dollars into this. Jesus says, maybe you should think about these things. Maybe you should consider this. Maybe you shouldn't just believe blindly You should trust in Jesus, yes. But you don't have to believe blindly because there's a word to follow. There's a person behind this word. I I think sometimes when we think of this this rationalness too, we sometimes think that we're just student. And this word disciple, when it really comes from from kind of the Greek concept of disciple, but I, I think sometimes when we think of student, we think of someone who knows a lot of information, right? That's generally what we think of when we think of student. Someone who can memorize a lot of stuff and then at just the right time they can pull it out a- and use it on a test to pass an exam. 
basically a good student is someone who can memorize a lot of really useless information that never gets used later on in life. That's generally how our schools seem to work. But, but it's interesting that we, we don't live very far from SATE. And it seems like at places like SATE, like a technological, like I have friends that go there, um, and, and they're in the trades. And they do learning slightly differently, right? They got like two, three months in a classroom, but then they've got nine months where they're actually doing this stuff. And then they go back and forth, back and forth in between these two. And really, most of the learning is on the job applied. So it's like, yes, you need some information. You need to think through it. But this is the kind of student that we're talking about that follows Jesus. Someone who's applied science. Someone who's applied information. I like the word apprentice, actually. I think that's a really good word. An apprentice usually works first and then decides, do I really want to pursue this? And then after they've worked, I had a, I had a boss who uh, at the same time um, that I was going to go full-time to plant a church, he says, do you want to apprentice under me? Well, I'd been working for the guy for six months and there was some tempting things about it because, you know, carpentry is a lot easier than being a pastor at times. But he said, do you want to apprentice under me? But I... I didn't just learn that day what was going on. I had been working with him and he had seen what I had done and he was starting to deliver responsibility and watched the way I learned and I learned how to use the tape measure again. I had forgotten all my fractions. Because carpentry still uses fractions. I don't know why. But it was applied. There was a using of this information. This is the kind of disciple. That's why we can't say that a disciple is just someone who just gathers information, who downloads a bunch of information on Sunday. It's rational. In fact, in John 14, 26, there is this sense in which Jesus said, I, this is exactly why I sent the Holy Spirit to you. It's not coming up here for me, Matt, but... He says this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. As you're going, he's teaching you. As you're going, he's teaching you. It's also relational. It's also relational. So it's not simply like a student-teacher relationship where, you know, it's like he's the boss and I'm just the servant. We all have those kind of you know, relationships where it's not really a relationship, right? It's not really a relationship. It's just thinking, I do what he says. Some of you, that's what your discipleship looks like. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, just give me what you want me to say, and I'll go on, do my lay, and do my thing. Jesus says, no, being my disciple is more than that. It's relational. There's a really cool story in the book of Acts. And it's just, it's just after Jesus has risen from the dead and, and, and there's been some preaching going on and some people have discovered the gospel and they're interested in being disciples, disciples and followers of Jesus. And it's in Acts chapter 4 and it says this. It, G, Peter has just kind of preached. And it says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, he said, You're, it's almost like they were expecting kind of this rational follower of Jesus, and they were like, wait a second, this guy didn't go to high school. This guy was like a fisherman who, who walked around in the desert with the guy for three years. They were astonished. 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Love that. They could tell that this guy had been with Jesus. He had a relationship with Jesus. And we have these kind of friendships. I don't know if they exist. I'm, um, yesterday we were in a conference and I sat beside my wife, which I love sitting beside my wife at conferences, but apparently there's a language that I just don't understand relationally. She seems to have it with some other friends, uh, but not with myself. And, and, and ladies and gentlemen, if you know this, Okay, and someone, you're in a room, you're in a party or something like that, there's a big group of people and your knees are, are able to touch your close friend or you're close enough. And someone says something or something happens and you just nudge. You ever have that happen where you just get the, the knee press? And so yesterday I got the knee press. It's like, you know, Jeff said something and I got the knee press and I turned and I was like, what? It could be four things. It could be you like what he said. It could be you should say that more often. And she's like, never mind. And she's like, you don't really get it. She said, I've, I've got friends, something is said, and you just press the knee and you look. Maybe it's a look for you. You got a friend, right? Someone says something, you get, get the eye contact from the other person, you're like. And you know what they're thinking, right? You know what they're thinking. You don't need to say words, you know what they're thinking. Now, how can you do that? You can only do that through relationship, my friends. That only become, comes through years and years and years of relationship. I love Pat. I couldn't do this with Pat because I just met him. You know, after the Sunday, I couldn't just like, hey, that song, Pat? Just want you to know that. He'd be like, what's going on, dude? Like, what? you guys are creepy here. But maybe over time, Pat and I talk. We become friends and we said, there's certain things that happen Sunday morning that I want you to watch out for. And, and you know, when there's this many people, watch for this. And, and, and when it's this time and this time of year, watch for this. And then maybe two years in and, and uh, something happens. And, I, and on the way down, I just nudge Pat and I'm like, see? And he'd probably be like, yeah, totally. Where's that born out of? It's relationship. That's born out of relationship. Friends, you don't just need to know about Jesus. You need to know Jesus. But here's the great thing. You can know Jesus. Sometimes when people pass away, like especially in sports figures, I don't know why they do this, but I, I, I watch probably too much sports. And so some father passes away and some guy on some sports team has an amazing game. And you know what they always say? That father's spirit was with that guy that day giving him the power to throw the football 450 yards. I mean, there's nothing rational about this at all. This is just like, you know, some spirit somewhere somehow is more interested in the football game than anything else that his son or daughter is playing. But here's what Jesus said. It's actually good that I leave this earth because when I leave this earth, I will give you my spirit. That's a guarantee. You get the spirit when you become a Christian. And the Spirit of Jesus, this is how you need to think of the Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus does where there's no restriction of a body. In fact, this is Jesus coming inside of you 
and being in relationship with you. That's why sometimes when you read like, oh my goodness, I never saw that before. I never saw it that way before. How could this possibly be read at this particular time in this particular way? How did, did somebody know that I was going to have this job interview that this, do you know who that was? That was the Holy Spirit of God inside of you connecting the dots in relationship with you. Being a disciple of Jesus is not simply knowing his name. And by the way, Jesus is not his first name and Christ is not his last name. He's a person. He is a person who you can know through his Holy Spirit. When Jesus reconciles with you on judgment day and you say, I can tell you all kinds of things about you what you did. He will say, I don't care if you know about what I did. I care if you know who I am. And if you know who I am, Jesus can begin to nudge you. That's why some people say, I don't, I don't, I don't know what this is, but I just feel like I need to go talk to that person and tell them I love them. Do you know what that is? That is the Holy Spirit of God doing this. You know what I'm talking about. That's the Holy Spirit whispering here. Dude, this is what I was talking about in my scripture. Go talk to that guy. Go talk to that girl. Go tell your kids you're sorry. Go confess your sin. Sometimes they don't, like I've never heard from Jesus audibly. I just get these nudges that are from not me. Because my reaction is, no, I I don't want to do that. Why do I feel like I have to do that? I don't, I don't, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. How do you hear from God? How do you hear from Jesus? Well, you have to be in relationship with him. You can't just be in it for information. Lastly, it's, it's missional. It's missional. I got to wrap this up here. It's missional. Sometimes we feel like, okay, well, uh, you're telling me that being a disciple of Jesus, I get, like, the Spirit of God right within me, like the God of the universe? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So what, what, what's that power for? Is that for kind of living the life that I want to live? Actually, it's not. One of the things, if you go back to what I originally said, is a disciple always has to count the cost. And one of the things that, that happens as a disciple is you say, I die to my own mission. And now I'm on a different mission, and that mission is the mission of Jesus. And that's who the Holy Spirit has been given for. And some of us have misunderstood the Holy Spirit as this this kind of supernatural force that's there to just tell me I'm a good person. And really, that's, that's not really true. The Spirit does encourage. The Spirit is called the Helper. But this is what Jesus said a little bit after. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And this is what it's for. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He said, there's there's a reason why I'm going to give you my power. And it's so you can tell people about me. And so being a disciple includes being a witness. This isn't who we are, but it is what we're called to do as a disciple, as a follower. 
to be a witness. It's interesting, like when you think about when you think about this idea of being a witness. What what does a witness do? I remember uh, two months ago when we are uh, I can't really say the name of the country publicly, but we're in a, a country where I didn't know the local language, and it was we, we used an interpreter. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced listening to something for forty minutes with an interpreter. It's quite an interesting experience, to say the least. But I noticed that an interpreter does not choose the message. An interpreter simply stands there, listens to the message, and then almost verbatim speaks it out very quickly. And I think we need to think of witness in that term. We don't choose the message. We take some time to interpret it for the people that we know we're talking this message to. But essentially, we're just the conduits called to to give witness to the goodness of Jesus Christ, to who he is. When some people hear that word witness, they get really scared. They're like, I don't know what to say. Train me in, in what to say. I was like, it's very hard to train someone when you don't know who they're saying it to. I don't know who you talk to throughout the week. How could I possibly know that? And so it's actually my job as your pastor to train you and equip you in what the message is so that regardless of who do you talk to, you know what the message is. And that somehow this message needs to be communicated. What's that message? It's the goodness of Jesus Christ. That God of the universe decided out of his great love for us, wanted to be with us. He wanted us to become part of his story. He wanted us to bring glory to him. He wanted us to be in relationship with him. But there was a major problem is that we really didn't want to be with God. We had our own ways. We had other ways of finding our own identity. And God said, I won't be satisfied with just simply allowing them to to choose this path of darkness. I, I know what I'll do. I will come to them I will be amongst them. I will come and live like one of them. And I will bridge the gap. I will pay for their sins. I'll get rid of the debt. I'll pay the price so that they can be relational. I won't make them pay the price. I will pay the price. And here's what I'll ask them to do. I'll ask them to just believe in me. I'll ask them to count the cost of giving their entire life to me. But then I will make them witnesses. And I will make them into missionaries who then speak this good news over the whole earth. When you're called to the the witness stand in the court of law, and they say, what did you see on the night of December 8th? 2013 the witnesses generally don't say boy i i uh what should i say what is there something that i can do that can help no they say what they saw that's what a witness does right when you call a witness up the center, who's, who's watched law shows or movies right what's a bad witness bad witness is someone who gets up there and makes stuff up as they go along right you don't want that witness have you ever seen those sh- 
those shows or read those stories where it's like you, you prep the witness and, and the witness is supposed to say this, but then out of fear of what's going to happen when the witness gets on the stand, they just tell a completely opposite story and they're like, get off the stand, you're a terrible witness. What's a witness supposed to do? A witness is simply supposed to s- tell people what they saw, felt, and experienced. What is your job to witness to your friends? What you see and experience and know. And I, I, I've said this over and over again. It's really hard to witness when you haven't experienced how good Jesus is. You'll have a hard time telling people God is great when you don't know he's great. You'll have an awful time trying to say, you know, Jesus is the Savior of all things. If he isn't the Savior of all things for you, you'll have an awful time. Here's what you'll be. You'll be a terrible witness if you're trying to, to make stuff up. Have you ever walked through the mall? Anyone? Okay, you see those guys at the kiosks and they're selling stuff they don't believe in. See them? They're playing with their helicopters. This is boring. I wish I was doing something else. Right? They're like, this is lame. That's like, that's a piece of junk. He's like, yeah, I know. I'm just selling it. I was like, oh, good, good job in the sales. Have you ever met someone who really believes in what they're selling? And you're like, oh, I'm not really interested. They're like, oh, oh, but you, you don't understand. You don't understand what kind of deal this is. Yeah, I don't really have the money. Why? Well, this is the best it's going to get for you. Yeah, well, honestly, I'm not really interested. Yeah, yeah, but you don't get the picture here. You don't get how great this is. What's that? Either someone is really desperate or someone who really believes in the product they're selling. I think that's most of our problem when it comes to witnessing. We don't believe that Jesus is that great. We don't believe that he really has covered our sins. We're trying to cover our own. We don't believe that he really has set out a better mission for us. We think ours is better. We don't really believe that he's that worthwhile that to give up everything to gain him is worth it. This is why it's a cost. This is why it's a cost. This is why this is a hard word for us and yet it's why it's an important word. Because here's what Jesus says, when you believe me, I will do everything that needs to be done. I will pay the price. I will give you my spirit. I will give you the mission. I will be in relationship. That's what Matthew 28, 19 says. Go make disciples. I'm with you every step of the way. I'm never going to leave you alone on your mission. I'm never going to send you into a place where I'm not willing to go. I'm never going to ask you to do things that I won't be with you in. He says, you can make disciples because I want to do it through you. And so I'll call the band up as we close. What I want you to hear is the cost, but I also want you to hear that that cost is nothing compared to the cost and the price that Jesus paid. And each week we celebrate this because we're very forgetful people. 
many of us have this little app on our phone called an alarm clock that reminds us what time to get up every day, right? Some of you have that. Some of you actually have little boxes on your nightstand that are set aside just for this. What does that do? Reminds you to get up at this particular time because you're either forgetful or you're prone to just sleep through it. Jesus knew we were forgetful. He loved us. And so he said, every time you are together, here's what I want you to do. I want you to celebrate this family meal to remember this enormous price that I paid for you. I want you to remember that there is nothing that needs to separate you from a relationship with me. I've paid that price. We have the wine, the juice, the cup to symbolize his shed blood. The Bible actually said there's no forgiveness of sins. You can't have a debt paid without some sort of blood being shed. And Jesus said, my blood is enough. It's a once and for all sacrifice. But it's not just this imaginary distant thing that was just a spiritual death. No, he was a real person. That's what we symbolize in the bread. He was on this earth. You can go to Israel and be in the places where he walked. God came to the earth. He suffered with a physical body, and that's what we celebrate with the bread. And so friends, if you have never counted the cost of being the disciple, I want to invite you today, say today, today is the day that I want to begin to follow Jesus. I don't want to just be a booky, nerdy student of him. I don't want to just be on his mission. I want to know him. I want to be on his mission. And I want to know more about my Savior. If you've never made that decision, friends, I would say, what's holding you back? But here's what I also say. For those of us where this is a regular occurrence, do not take this for granted this morning. Remember the fact that you and clean conscience can come forward and partake of the wine, the cup, the juice, and the bread this morning is a great privilege, a great gift of grace from Jesus. And by doing so, you're actually participating in what our church would call proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. It also reminds you that this is, this is an act of worship for us. And so after we sing, we also gather our funds. We gather our money together as a church family because that's what families do. And that that also is an act of worship for us. And so I ask now that you just take the time to respond as, as Pat's going to lead us through some great songs. This is a time for you to respond to the call to Jesus. Come and follow me. Come to die.